This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. You have surely noticed that I talk about the climate crisis and climate events pretty much every single day on the show, but I do it through a news lens. I let you know what's happening and how people are responding. There is some broader context missing. I'm not quite capable of connecting all those dots for you. However, one of our new columnists is... Arno Kobecki is a journalist and the author of The Environmentalist's Dilemma. Hey, Arno, great to chat with you once again. Thank you for making time to join us. Thanks for having me. It is great to be here. So let's start in the realm of politics. The federal Conservative Party has chosen a new leader. It's Pierre Polyevre. How do you suspect his selection may influence environmental policy within that party? Well, the short answer is uh, terribly <laughs> um, Pierre Polyev sort of represents the the coming to power of a movement within the Conservative Party that really sees any attempt at environmental preservation as an assault on the well-being of Canadians. Um, that's not entirely new. I mean, there was a time when the Conservative Party uh, was aligned with environmental conservation. Uh, Viewers and listeners of a certain age may recall uh, a time when the world was worried about the ozone layer, and this was back in the 80s, and it was the Conservative Party of Canada under Brian Mulroney that spearheaded uh, this global movement that that uh, that became the Montreal Protocol to ban CFCs and, and really save the, the, uh, the ozone layer and <laughs> save the world. But under Stephen Harper... Uh, and the 10 years of his government, they, the Conservative Party aligned itself with the oil sands and, and big oil and resource extraction generally. And they just declared war on the environmental movement. Um, you know, they clear cut uh, all environmental regulations across the board in this country, launched audits of environmental organizations. And, you know, Pierre Polyev was a cabinet minister in that government. And 10 years later, now he has come to power and really... Yay has ratcheted up that kind of rhetoric and thinking. I was at the first uh, leadership debate in in Edmonton, and it was quite something to behold. You know, uh, the, everybody on stage except Jean Charest was basically, you know, literally they were talking about not letting eco-terrorists uh, cancel the oil industry. And, you know, they were going to, and Pierre Polyev famously has promised to build pipelines in all directions. Um, and really, you know, uh, Pierre Polyev is very good at that kind of language. People are, this is a time when, of course, inflation is exploding. Uh, there's just a ton of uncertainty and and sort of fear of, of what's coming around the corner. And the environment and the environmental movement uh, makes a pretty convenient scapegoat because it does raise the cost of living a little bit to not just plunder the earth. Mm. Uh, in the short term, it, it raises costs. Of course, I would argue that plundering uh, our resources the way we have been for a couple of centuries now is part of the reason why we're living in the midst of a, of, a, of an explosion of cost of living. Let, but that's that's Pierre Polyev. 
let, let's talk about the extraction side. I think we're really good about talking about and covering pipelines, whether it be expansions to the west or Enbridge to the east. Maybe I'm digging too deep here, but how is mining for critical minerals factored into environmental policy lately? And pardon the pun. No, you, uh, you, I'm a, I'm a dad, Dave, so you can pun anytime you want to, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So, you know, mineral mining to the extent that the conservative party under Polyev has an environmental policy, which they don't, all he's really said that he would do is ax the carbon tax, but mining for minerals really is, uh, the closest thing they have to one. They, they have, they have said, uh, various factions of the party have said, well, look, there, there is money to be made in EV technology and in electric vehicles and this wave of, 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 of electric cars and electrification. And that, and of course, Canada ha is a mining superpower. Uh, so we have lithium deposits all across the country, really, that are almost completely untapped. Canada is not uh, present on the world stage when it comes to mining the, the materials that are needed for these electric vehicles. And the Conservatives are definitely open to, uh, you know, exploring that option. But Canada has been pretty behind the ball. Uh, Quebec is the one province that has that has done some good things. They, you know, they've invested a couple of billion dollars to to fast track some battery assembly plants for these things and get some of these mining deposits going. Ontario uh, has spoken a lot. There's the famous Ring of Fire in the north of the of Ontario, where there's a ton of uh, all kinds of, of precious metals, but especially including lithium. Uh, but it's really remote, and so there's no roads to get there. So it's right now there's zero infrastructure, and it takes years to develop that kind of infrastructure to get those precious metals into the market. And so, uh, this, you know, Canada is now waking up to that. The federal government under the Liberals have also uh, promised a couple of billion dollars to to fast track this, and industry is interested. So everybody's talking about it. Uh, but we're, it's pretty slow in, 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 in the works. Arno, I've got a question here about political messaging and climate change, but I, I have to confess to you, it took me about 45 minutes to pick the wording on this so carefully. Because <laughs> okay. uh, like, I, I just think there's, there's sort of a lot of nuance into it. So here's what I eventually settled on. Is it easier for politicians to message cavalier climate policy when there aren't immediately recent domestic climate catastrophes occurring. And of course, even the premise of my question no longer works after Fiona, the hurricane ravaged parts of Atlantic Canada. But can you indulge me in the theoretical of that question? Yeah, absolutely. I think what you're saying is, you know, if there's not a massive environmental catastrophe, is it easy for politicians to ignore uh, the state of the environment and, and just, you know, promote business, business, business? You know, I, I think the traditional answer was certainly what I've always thought is, is you're right. Um, climate change was not really in the top five voter concerns in Canada or almost anywhere else until the last five years when we have just been getting hammered year after year by forest fires and massive floods and droughts and all of these things. And it has suddenly impacted our you know, it has jumped out of the screen and into our lives, I would say. I live in British Columbia, and last fall, we just, we got these atmospheric rivers that shredded our highways and our infrastructure. It mm. cost us $2 billion. That was after a summer of, of heat waves and heat domes. Um, so that kind of thing really, I think, forces politicians to engage with, with this uh, because the public is concerned. And now we've just had a summer that, like you say, was relatively benign in Canada around climate change. And I think that really helped Pierre Polyev not have to, he didn't have a climate policy or anything like that. And it makes it easy 
you know, I think I think we're we're human, and the electorate tends to focus uh, on immediate concerns. Mm. I will say though uh, uh, that I think so. As you say, Fiona just happened yesterday in the House of Commons. Uh, Rosemary Falk, who's an MP, a conservative MP from Saskatchewan, stood up in question period and and denounced the carbon tax, saying literally, "Why hasn't the why didn't the carbon tax stop Hurricane Fiona?" and so I think that you're going to see that kind of logic coming from the conservatives, which just really reminds me of, of, of the anti-vax movement and how they say, well, how come people who have been vaccinated can still get COVID-19? So much for that theory. Um, you know, and I think we're going to see some of the same stuff going forward around climate change and other environmental considerations where they say, well, we, you know, you spent all this money to try to stop this global problem and it didn't stop this global problem that's been building for 50 years. So... Uh, forget it. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. You used the word uh, benign to describe the climate situation in Canada over the summer. Yeah, I think you said relatively benign, which I think, again, that's that's you and me trying to, like, pick our words so yeah, carefully because we know that, yeah, relatively, the, it's, it's relativity within the relativity. But as we look abroad, there were some really jarring climate events around the world Absolutely. this summer. Off the top of my head, flooding in Pakistan at one point, almost, what, 40% of the country was underwater. There was drought yeah. in parts of Africa and China, significant drought. A massive heat wave in Europe, no shortage of wildfires, drought or flooding in North America as well, particularly on the U.S. side. As you reflect on the last few months, were there any of of those that were particularly notable to you? Sure. I think you named the big ones. I think Pakistan is really the scale of that. I, I don't think it has sunk into people who are not paying close attention. Like you said, almost half the country has been kicked out of their homes. It's underwater. Uh, and that that is putting into place that you know winter is now coming and that country is just uh, the, the the scale of catastrophe I, th I think is really unprecedented and that is you know basically the himalayan glaciers melted and and drowned that country um in a very short order another one that really stood out you know the european heat wave uh, that dried up massive rivers like the you know famous rivers like the danube and the rhine uh, there was this famous moment when uh, a rock a big boulder was revealed in the rhine river uh, that said, if you can see this, weep, uh, because in historical times when the water levels got that low, famine was around the corner. Uh, so taken all together, exactly as you say, you know, Canada was very relatively spared from the worst of climate change this year, uh, but the rest of the world was absolutely not. It was a horrendous uh, track record of, of climate impacts. And, and I think we're we're about to see some of the impacts of, of what, you know, winter is now coming, food is going to be a real issue. And I think in Europe where they are, you know, they're already dealing with the outcome of the war in Ukraine and, and Putin shutting off oil and gas reserves. So they're going to have this uh, very, very intense energy crunch during winter that is going to coincide with a food crunch because many of the food producing regions of the world uh, have have just been you know they've had some of the worst harvests in in recent memory yeah so, the the un uh, going to get real. the un's been sounding the alarm in regards to the uh, famine situation particularly in east africa the last couple of days but we know it's a situation that's in, impacting places all around the world in fact even in yeah. china a lot of that drought they had it, it hurt a lot of their food producing regions as well and that's you know a couple billion people who uh, are fed from that bread 
red belt. So there's a lot to be concerned about on the global food supply. But Arno, you also mentioned the energy side of this conversation. So let's go back. Let's circle back to where we started here, and that's political policy. As we find ourselves at a time of energy supply questions, and let's call them price fluctuations, what do you make of some of the incongruence in the conversation around renewable energy versus fossil fuel producers trying to increase production? Absolutely. So, you know, uh, it is really it's kind of a mind warp here when people say, look, energy is so expensive. There's this huge energy crunch. So, of course, the solution should be to build more pipelines and get more oil and gas into the market so that energy becomes cheap again. And certainly that is Pierre Polyev's and the conservative answers. Uh, I think it is notable that when the German president came to visit Canada, I believe it was in August, he was not asking about how can we get more natural gas or oil to Germany? He was asking about how can we get hydrogen to Germany and, and specifically green hydrogen. Um, the Europeans are extremely aware that uh, relying on oil and gas from foreign sources is their problem right now. And they're also extremely aware with the recent droughts and drying up of all their rivers that climate change is also a huge problem. And the way to kill both of those birds with one stone is is to get off of fossil fuels and to invest heavily in renewable, clean energy sources. And that is exactly what Europe is doing. This summer and, and Putin's war in Ukraine has just insanely fast-tracked uh, European climate policy and, got, and is really getting them to, uh, you know, focus all hands on deck on getting clean energy to power their cities and their industries. And so that's not going to happen in the very short term. It wouldn't happen. You can't build a a hydrogen or sorry, a a natural gas and oil supply to Europe any quicker than you can build clean energy. Uh, Both of those things take years. So there's no short term solution other than really buckling down and and conserving as much energy as Mm -hmm. you can. And that's that's what they're doing. And that's reverberating, I think, around the world, Uh, of course, in places that produce oil and gas like Canada and the United States. There is an immense amount of of industrial and political backlash against that notion and people with vested interest and money to make are saying, no, 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 no. The answer to all of this is to build more uh, infrastructure for oil and gas. And let's let's tack on some carbon capture. You know, they sort of acknowledge they wink at at climate change in there, but mostly they're concerned about let's make money because we there's money to be made. And look, there's an oil crunch. uh, So there's an energy crunch. So we've got the energy. I think it's really notable that in the United States, where they just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, that is, uh, you know, the the world's biggest investment in, in clean energy and 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 climate combating uh, policy that that has that has ever happened, and that the name of that act, the Inflation Reduction Act, is is no mistake. They're they're specifically saying, you know, if we get off oil and gas and invest in clean energy, life will become cheaper. And recent studies have shown that uh, the war in Ukraine, that that in this inflation crisis that we're going through right now, 41% of that is because the price of oil has has shot through the roof like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so as long as we're depending on oil and gas, we are vulnerable to these supply crunches and these spikes and these the vagaries of the price of oil, which are not new. These this has been happening for decades. Arno, we have to get out of here, but you mentioned you enjoy a good dad joke. So because we covered such heavy ground, let me finish on something lighter here. I asked the date to meet me at the gym. She never showed up. That's how I knew we'd never work out. Oh, Dave. <laughs> that's that poetry in motion. That's 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 why you're sitting in the chair you're sitting that's in. That's why that's that. why they pay me the moderate bucks. Arno, thank you for this. I'm so excited to have you as a regular contributor on the show. 
Me too, Dave. Thanks so much. That was great. That's Arno Kopecki, a journalist and the author of The Environmentalist's Dilemma. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.